1 Peter 1 and 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, remember uncontested, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these strangers are possibly Jews and Gentile Christians. They're like the Christians of the dispersion all over these areas of Asia Minor. And then I want to read a second verse, 1 Peter 4.12. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So I want to dig into the theme of a major theme of 1 Peter tonight. Another message to the dispersed church. God bless you. Please be seated. These are people living, pagan cultures, surrounded by ungodly people. They were facing the heat of trials. The apostle Peter writes to them, not to just a single church, which would be shared to everyone, including us, but to these dispersed Christians, the dispersed church. The theme, the major theme, and there are several currents in the river of First Peter, but the major theme of First Peter is suffering in glory. The apostle Peter writes to disciples of Jesus Christ to give them hope in the midst of their suffering. Like the apostle Paul wrote, he wants them to know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of which shall be revealed in us. So in this letter, Peter spoke much about persecution, which was anticipated by Christians all over the world. But finally, Christians who might have lived around Rome and however far the persecution of Nero might have reached. At the time Peter wrote this book, he had not yet been arrested, and that would eventually lead to his martyrdom possibly between 60, A.D. 66 and A.D. 68. 1 Peter 5 and 13 indicates that Peter is from this place he calls Babylon, probably a reference to the spiritual condition of Rome. I mentioned that at the end of my message last Wednesday night. He's probably writing from Rome. The church that is at Babylon, elected together, greets you. And he focuses on bearing up under unjust suffering yet continuing to live well in spite of it all. First Peter 2.20 For what glory is it, he says, if when you are buffeted for your faults, you did wrong and you get beat up by it, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. The Apostle Peter has been called by some the Job of the New Testament, like the book of Job in the Old Testament. It talks about the suffering of a righteous man. Some people say that the Apostle Peter follows this same theme and he calls people to endurance in the same way that Job was, in call, was called to endure temptation and struggle and trouble in his life. And he was a righteous man. Job was upright. He loved God, hated evil. And yet he went through unspeakable trial, fiery trial, you could say, that Job went through. And yet he was a righteous man. The Apostle Peter maintains that you can have that same kind of perseverance and endurance through struggle that 
you go through in your very own life. So no other book in the Bible, New Testament book, focuses as much on suffering and glory as the book of 1 Peter. Uh, written, of course, to give Christians a better understanding. And I, the verse I read to you, Think It Not Strange, probably unlocks the book a little bit that these Christians were wondering what in the world has gone wrong. Why are we suffering like this? And the Apostle Peter breaks it down. He circles around to the same theme over and over throughout this book. And while the Apostle Paul speaks about suffering and he addressed suffering to the Thessalonians, uh, the Apostle Peter uses uh, this word for suffering more in this one epistle than Paul speaks of suffering in all of his writings in 13 books. So hardship, setback, disappointment, illnesses, all kinds of suffering uh, can be a stumbling block to the faith of people. So if you get to the end of the book, which I probably will not get tonight, he says that after you've suffered a while, I, the Lord will make you perfect or whole, mature, and that He will strengthen, establish, and settle you. That's the end result of whatever we go through in our life. To the Apostle Peter, suffering isn't something we just put up with. It's, it's something that we should expect in our lives. Now I know you're thrilled to come to church on a Wednesday night after you think you've already suffered enough today to hear a message on suffering. Just preaching the Bible, this message to the dispersed church. So I was thinking, I had last week didn't really finish my notes, but I've been pondering this theme. And so I wanted to go back. I, I put this section in. Uh, I want to talk about why people suffer. And I don't expect in the next few minutes to try to nail down every possible reason people suffer in this world. And I'm talking now about believers, okay? Christian people. But there are some reasons we suffer some categories. And again, I, I, I probably missed something. I don't know that this is definitive, but I've searched around and thought and pondered this. But one of the reasons we suffer is that we live in a fallen world. In Genesis, when Adam sinned, there were curses that resulted from that sin. The Lord said to the serpent, you're cursed above all cattle. So first of all, the serpent was cursed. And then Eve, the word cursed is not used exactly, but she's now told that the Lord is going to multiply her sorrow in childbearing. And maybe the greatest curse, I'd say that parent, that you know, like in a way, Greatest curse is that the Lord said, Your desire shall be to your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, there's serious suffering right there, right? That's what the Lord said to Eve. So he cursed the serpent. He told Eve she was going to have children in pain and that she was going to have to be subjected to the leadership of her husband. And then he told Adam that the ground was cursed for his sake. He said, because you listened to your wife in her temptation, you know, eaten of the tree, I can't commanded you that you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And he tells Adam that in sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. So you're going to live a life, you're going to have to work, and it's not going to be an easy life. 
And he said, thorns and thistles are going to grow up, so the ground is going to work against you. This is not going to be like it was in Eden, Eden before the fall. And he said, in the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. And then he tells Adam the greatest consequence, you're going to die. You're going to eat this till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, out of dust you are, and to the dust you shall return. Now the Lord told Adam, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will die. And in that day, Adam died spiritually, was separated from God. And in the Bible, death equals separation, separation from us, us from God, and, and the body from the spirit in physical death. And the second death, separated from God forever. Adam died spiritually, and ultimately, or later, he died physically. So you see, this is kind of where we were. Wilmington's Guide to the Bible said there were seven words Adam did not know before the fall. He did not know death, nakedness, curse, sorrow, thorns, sweat, or sword. But when sin entered into that world, by Adam's sin, Eve was deceived. Adam was not. He joined Eve in his sin. It was a willful act. He learned about death and shame that came with nakedness, curse, sorrow, thorns, sweat, sword, and that would be what took place on planet earth after that. We suffer sickness, not necessarily because of sin in our lives, although the Bible gives room for that, that a person can become sick because of sin. I didn't plan to get into that and won't. But hatred, murder, every kind of sin came into the world because of the fall. We suffer because we live in a fallen world that has not yet been restored and we're not in heaven in case you didn't know that. The Bible said in Romans 5 and 12, whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all of sin. We know that all of sin had come short of the glory of God. So death came into the world because of original sin. We suffer, first of all, because we live in a fallen world. And we should not think it's strange. I know the context, what Peter wrote there. But we should not think it's strange that we get sick, that people die, that we live in a fallen world. We shouldn't be happy that people sin and steal and kill and hate. But that's the world we live in. And we sometimes are affected by that. Children grow up in homes where that home is away from God. And they suffer unspeakable consequences because of that. Not for something they did, but they face the consequences of parents who live in a fallen world and lead sinful lives. A second reason we suffer, and again, I'm not trying to give every reason. You can let me know what I miss later. Don't raise your hand tonight. We suffer because of poor choices and sinful behavior. The Bible said in Proverbs 13, 15 that the way of the transgressor is hard. When you sin, you suffer. When you sin, you go against the grain of the way you were made. When you sin, you're in violation of God's word, God's principles. And like trying to buck the law of gravity or the law of inertia, you will always pay a price for going against the word of God. That's why I like to say that the Bible is not a rule book. It is a road map. It is a book of wisdom. It is an owner's manual for life. 
It will keep you in a good way and protect you from an evil way. And we suffer when we make bad decisions and when we sin. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2.20, I'll get to this verse a little later or maybe next week. He said, what glory is it when you're buffeted for your own faults? When you do dumb things and you pay the price for it, you don't need to say, why me? Why God? Why this? You just need to say, why did I do that? And you know what? I'm not going to give up. I'm going to get up. I'm going to repent. I'm going to make a better decision next time. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. But don't blame God. You know, don't say I'm taking it patiently and when I did this. And then, in Proverbs, I'm going to give a lot of verses tonight that I won't show on the screens. Proverbs 3.11, the Lord said, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son, in whom he delighteth. In other words, when, God's, when you do wrong, there's a price to pay, there is suffering. God will take you to what some people call the woodshed. He will correct you because he loves you. Hebrews quotes Solomon, Hebrews 12, 5 through 13. I'll just refer to this passage when he, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation you know, of Proverbs to despise not? the chastening of the Lord, and don't faint when you're rebuked of Him for whom the Lord loves. He chastens and He scourges every son He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. And if God never chastens you, then you're an illegitimate child. King James uses a word that I won't use from the pulpit. And he said, we had fathers that corrected us the best they could, but according to their own nature, but... God chastens us in His wisdom. And He tells us that no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. It's grievous. Nevertheless, it yields or produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I love that King James phrase, exercised thereby. I think of a parent exercising some type of discipline. You know, they're getting a little physical exercise. And then in that context of discipline, the writer of Hebrews says, lift up the hands that hang down on the feeble knees. The Lord just spanked you. But pull it together. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. So you should not blame God or others when you face the consequences of sin or poor choices. God ordained the laws of sowing and reaping. And typically he doesn't intervene in those laws. Amen. Be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you shall of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. So God, these bad decisions lead to consequences because we always reap what we sow. You reap in kind and you reap more than you sow. You plant one seed, you get a lot bigger harvest than what you sowed, right? And you sow good seed, you get a lot more good harvest. You sow poor, bad seed, you get a lot more than you sow. And some people sow wild oats, 
then they pray for a crop failure. But I've said this numerous times through the years. While you're reaping the consequences of bad decisions, why don't you hold on and know that the laws of sowing and reaping never fail? That while you're reaping the consequences of bad choices, make good choices today knowing that that same law will bless you in the future. Live through it. Amen. Job 5.17 Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. That sounds like, how is that? Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty, for he maketh sore God because of bad decisions. He makes you sore. He binds up the wounds and he, his hands make whole. So it is the same God that chastens, spanks us in our bad decisions, but it's the same God who brings us back to Him. So even our poor choices, and we suffer for them, can be a means of God bringing us back to Himself and aligning us to Himself. Jeremiah 2.19, I ran across this verse years ago, and it's been a guiding principle for me in dealing with people. Jeremiah 2.19, not on the screen, so write it down. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that you forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Remember when Hosea, the Lord speaking of Gomer, that, is, that wife who was adulterous, that he would hedge her way in thorns. So while she is going after her ungodly lovers, she keeps running into briars and, and the consequences or you know the things that she did wrong now become something to chasten back into her the character of God. So even when a person does wrong, the consequences of those bad decisions are God's way of trying to turn you back to Him and say, this is not the kind of life that I want to live. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for allowing the sin of incest to exist in the congregation and not to deal with it. And Paul tells them, when you get in a good church service, I'm paraphrasing, you need to turn this person over to the devil. You need to put them out of the church. Deliver that person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of, Jesus, of, the, day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said that person is going to be put out of fellowship and they're going to go through so many difficulties because they don't have the protection of the body of Christ that they're going to turn back to God. And if you go to the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that person's repented They've turned around, received them back into fellowship. We suffer many times because of our poor choices and sinful decisions. But the Bible said in Proverbs 9 and 8 that scorners do not respond to correction. That if you rebuke a scorner, someone who mocks sacred things, that that scorner will hate you. Have you ever noticed that there are some people on your best day your most diplomatic approach after prayer and fasting and the kindest words you can say when you finish, that person hates your guts because you tried to help them. But faithful are the wounds of a friend better than the kisses of an enemy. 
And maybe somewhere down the road, that scorner will turn back to God. And then there's, I'm going to stop spending a little bit of time here, quite a bit of time on purpose. The Bible said in Proverbs 29.1 that he that being often reproved, corrected, but hardens his neck. You know, Stephen talks about this in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. The Bible talks about people that just harden themselves against God. But Proverbs 29.1 and you're often reproved, you harden your neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. After a while, when a person will not respond to the correction of the Lord, there's a time when God, according to the Bible, cuts them off, and it is beyond recovery. And we leave that time and that person to God and don't try to label or mark people we think have gone too far. That's not our job. Amen. Now, we suffer. Another reason we suffer, so we suffer because we live in a fallen world. We suffer for poor and sinful choices. But then we suffer because suffering has a purifying effect. According to the Bible, suffering has a purifying effect. And it's important right now for everybody hearing this, including the guy saying this, to realize that I need correction and purifying. Amen? For all of us. As the writer of Hebrews noted, the Lord doesn't, if the Lord does not correct us, it's because we don't belong to Him. We're illegitimate. We're not really His. James, it's a very similar book in some ways. James is written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad to dispersed Jewish Christians. James says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And I believe it's speaking in verse 12, James 1 and 12, of trials. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say that when he is tempted of sin now, that I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted, tempted to sin, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So he first of all says, he kind of separates trials that God allows and temptations that we choose to give into, right, in this, in this opening chapter of the book of James. But he tells us if we endure trials that we will receive a crown of life. It has a purifying effect. Job 23.10. Job 23.10. The words of Job. But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And scriptures in the Bible about a fining pot for silver and how dross is removed by heat applied to molten silver, for example. And the dross, the impurities come to the surface and they are skimmed away and the silver continues to be affected by the heat and more impurities 
come to the surface, gold and silver. And this is what Job has in his mind, that God knows where. And, I, and when I come through this trial, Peter calls it a fiery trial. Job says, I will come forth as gold. The apostle Peter said it in 1 Peter 1 and 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Suffering can have, I think it's up to us, and should have a purifying effect on us. I'm kind of pausing now. I can move on in my notes, but, but I want to pause here. And go back to my text and the Apostle Peter said, Think it not strange concerning your fiery trial, which is to try you as if some strange thing has happened to you. Every one of us will go through seasons of suffering allowed by the Lord purify us, not to kill us, not to cause us to quit and walk away, but to cleanse out of us everything that is not like Him. If Job went through that process, if Peter is writing to these Christians who are scattered abroad throughout these provinces of Asia Minor, we are not above it and we should not think it is strange but we should just always say, Lord, like Job said, when I come forth, I'm going to come through this. I'm going to get to the other side of this. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews 2 and 10. Speaking of Jesus, for it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, I don't believe you can say that Jesus had sin or imperfection in him. But he became the perfect example by suffering when there was nothing in him. No sin, no guile. He suffered unjustly. And if he could go through that and be the perfect example for us by suffering that was undeserved, unneeded in his life, how much more? Do we need a fiery trial to purge out of us everything that is impure and not like Him? Now I'm going to take a little bit of time right now. I'm going to apply this because the Bible speaks of us as the children of God and God chastening us and disciplining us. So I want to speak to parents right now about the principle that God uses on us called discipline. And if you don't have young children, it may be too late. You can listen just to help somebody else. 1 Samuel 3.13, the Lord judged Samuel because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. He did not step in and intervene in their sinful behavior. So we're going to see several verses here. Proverbs 23.13 in the New Living Translation. 
Don't fail to discipline your children. The rod of punishment won't kill them. Physical discipline may well save them from death. In Proverbs 20 and 30, not on the screens, the Bible said, The blueness of a wound cleanses away evil, so do stripes, the inward parts of the belly. The New Living Translation of that same verse, Proverbs 20, 30, said physical punishment cleanses away evil. This is what the Bible knows about the way human beings are designed by God. Proverbs 13, 24, New Living Translation. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Now, I don't know that you could say that means a parent hates their child, but maybe they hate seeing their child cry. They hate seeing their child feel pain. And kind of like the Bible says, love less, that you love not having to punish or discipline more than you love the outcome for that child. And the Bible says this plainly. If you spare the rod of discipline, you hate your children. Proverbs 22, 15. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child to him, left to himself bringeth his mother shame. The New Living Translation says, but a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. So I, I repeat this point that suffering has a purifying effect on us. And I want to say this to us who work with people. Now you may think it's an act of love to not correct or rebuke. You know the Bible said that, that the Bible, all doctrine is profitable. For instruction, for rebuke, for correction, right? But no one likes to be rebuked. But I would rather be corrected than to go to hell. No chastening is pleasant for the present time. It's painful. And I wanted you to see these verses. I felt like I needed to do a little mini seminar to parents to remind you that your children need your guidance and direction and they need your correction. Hebrews 12, 11 no correction, no discipline. This is the New Living Translation. It is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceable harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And that verse is talking about how God disciplines His children. And I hope that's me. Because if He doesn't discipline me, I don't belong to Him. Now, the Bible does not teach that we should abuse children in any way. But if you read all these verses, if you look at the verses I just read, a love tap is not a spanking. Spare not for his crying means that a spanking is painful and breaks or shapes the will. But I'll also say, if you are angry and out of control as a parent, when you correct your child, you may have needed the spanking more than them. If you spanked them because you had a bad day, are more than is needed because you're in a bad mood. There's a higher authority in your life and he has 
something for you. I believe that you spank because of willful disobedience. Because of disobedient behavior. Not because you had a bad day or a child accidentally did something. They didn't intend to do it. It was an accident. Or maybe there's a, a place where that same thing's happened 40 times. I don't know. I'm not trying to be the parent of your children. But I don't think that spanking for childish irresponsibility is the best course of action. For defiance, yes. You better know that if, if there's defiance, there needs to be who's in charge here. And I know you know this, but parents who just want to let their children grow up and decide whether to live for God or not, decide whether to go to bed or not, decide whether to get up or not, decide their own path in life, you're failing your children as parents. We're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're to train them up in the way they should go. Amen. Not correcting your child is a form of abuse. It destroys them in the long run. Shows that the parent is more concerned about the pain that discipline causes them, the parent, than the goal of discipline. To, to ignore the many scriptural principles on physical discipline is to take secular wisdom over biblical wisdom. And if you look at our culture, you will see where permissive parenting has gotten us in our culture. Proverbs 19.18 Chasten thy son while there is hope. And let not thy soul spare for his crime. Now my message tonight is not all about parental discipline, but I really felt that I should pause in the middle of this message about the reasons for suffering. One of them is because we're, it has a purifying effect, okay? That's this point. It has a purifying effect. And all these scriptures about the Lord and us have their application about parenting and children that proper discipline has a purifying effect in a child. And they need this. And Proverbs 19.18 is kind of a scary verse that while there is hope, that parents have a window of opportunity to do this. And if you wait too late, when that will is so stubborn and shaped that you cannot affect that child, and, and I believe we should, should understand our children, their nature. You know, I've taught about this years ago. I don't want to go too deep into this, but our boys are all different. Our approaches were different with them. Sometimes it was punishment meted out equally because of what was going on. But you've got to understand the nature of your child and how to discipline them. You could be too harsh with some one and too lenient with another based on their nature. What does it take to bring them to a place of true repentance or change, right? But I can also tell you that the Lord knows you and the Lord knows me. And you, you may need 20 licks. Somebody else may need one. But no one is above correction. Now, I don't want to spend my life with the Lord 
having a giant, my, my grandfather used to spank with a razor strap, my mom said. I don't want the Lord having his belt cocked back on me every minute of the day. I don't want to live my life like that. You know, I'm going to apply the verse that obedience is better than sacrifice. That I think you can avoid a lot of trips to the spiritual woodshed, well, I guess that's where they used to spank, by doing the right thing. Don't be stubborn. Don't be rebellious. Don't always push against everything that God says in His Word. He loves you enough to keep on working on you. But if you keep hardening your neck, boom, then that's going to be the end. So I say all these verses on purpose that God tells us to correct our children and God is the perfect parent to us. And He does not spare the rod. He does not spare for your crying. He doesn't back off. Oh God, oh God. He loves you enough to listen to you complain and still love you enough to keep working on you so you can go to heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> so this main point is that suffering has a purifying effect. Like Job and gold, like the finer part, finding pot for silver. And when the heat is on in our lives, let that drive you to your knees. Let that say, you know, I need to fast and pray. I need to, I need to deal with this in my life. I need to take care of this. I don't want to keep circling around this same issue over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Let's take care of it. And let's move on. Amen? The next point, we suffer unjustly as Christians by persecution. Now the Apostle Peter covers some of the reasons that I've given you in 1 Peter. But the theme of his book kind of centers on this idea that these are Christians dispersed throughout the pagan world and these pagan neighbors and employers and slave owners and governors and rulers do not understand Christianity. They don't think that you Christians are the good guys. They think you're the bad guys. So the Apostle Peter deals with this. So let's talk about being persecuted or suffering at the hands of other people unjustly. In John 15, Jesus said that if the world hates you, just know that they hated me before they hated you. And he said that I've chosen you out of the world. And because of that, the world hates you. I've called you out of this darkness into light. And the world doesn't like it. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, these are the words of Jesus, they will persecute you. Now, we live... In the United States of America, I thank God that it's the land of the free, home of the brave, 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 brave. But there are people all over the world who are 
martyred, persecuted. They may not all be apostolic. They're just Christians in some fashion. But beaten, put to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray, I hope, that in our wonderful land that we don't ever face physical persecution. And my purpose tonight is not to try to be prophetic about what will happen, but because I'm called to teach the Bible, I'm here to prepare you for what could happen. So you would not think it strange concerning your fiery trial, as if some strange thing happened to you. And Jesus said that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In the, Old, in, the, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were in Egypt, Stephen spoke about this in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Remember, it's a really long sermon, and if I was getting ready to be killed, I would preach a really, really long time. And he did. It's a long sermon, Acts 7. But in Stephen's sermon, he, he spoke about this king, this Pharaoh who arose who did not know Joseph, and he, he dealt with... Our people, he said, he evilly, evil entreated our fathers. He didn't want them to live. So going all the way back to Egyptian slavery of God's people, there was persecution of them. And then in your book of Acts, there is many purposes, but records the early history of the church. I'll quickly go through this. In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested, thrown in jail. In 5, they're beaten. In chapter 6, Stephen is arrested. 7, he's martyred. In chapter 8, Paul imprisons lots of Christians. Remember, 8-1, they're scattered abroad because of this persecution. In chapter 9, Saul is breathing out threatenings and slaughter. In chapter 9, the Jews plot to kill this newly converted apostle Paul. In chapter 12, King Herod kills James and he imprisons Peter. In chapter 13, Barnabas and Paul are being driven out of Antioch. In chapter 14, they try to stone Barnabas and Paul. And later in chapter 14, they stone Paul either almost to death or perhaps to death if he was raised from the dead. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are put in prison, right? Pray and sing praises at midnight. In Acts 17, Paul is chased out of town. Acts 18, uh, there's, there's a lot of dif internal dispute and kind of ends up well at first. In Acts chapter 19, there's a riot in a pagan temple where they holler Diana, great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours and they're ready to kill Paul and his company. Acts 19, Paul's taken by the Jews and the shipwreck and eventually Paul is is martyr. Now am I ready to be offered? And the time of my departure is at hand. So this Bible, my Bible, has a lot about people who suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. And 1 Peter 4 and 12, that verse we read at the beginning, think it not strange concerning your fiery trial, which is to try you. Christians, in those days, suffered great persecution in Rome and throughout the Christian lands under Nero, the Roman emperor. Nero was the Caesar that tried Paul, at least in his first trial. 
In the summer of A.D. 64, Rome suffered a terrible fire. There are various accounts of this, but one says it burned for six days and seven nights and consumed three quarters of the city of Rome. Nero is credited by some as starting the fire to destroy a city that he wanted to rebuild better. He didn't like his town. He was ashamed of it, some say. Old history. Some say it was for his own amusement. He went and fiddled away, right? But in all of that, they started blaming Nero. So, looking for a scapegoat, Nero found the Christians and arrested many of them. Made them a game for retribution, trying to blame shift on Christian people. This is the history of Think It Not Strange. This is the Apostle Peter writing maybe a year or so before, or, or maybe even in the year of the fire, and before his arrest and his martyrdom. And he's seeing what's going to happen, maybe prophetically, I believe, in the writing of this book. Made subjects of sport. Many of them were covered with the hides of animals and killed by dogs. Other brothers and sisters of yours and mine were nailed to crosses. Some say by history that Peter was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die right side up like his Lord. That's who knows, but he was killed. Jesus prophesied, by the way, that he would die. And so here is this, this persecution this fiery trial. Christians were set on fire to serve as lights or torches in the evening by, by Nero. These are my brothers and sisters. These are your brothers and sisters. And tonight I just want to remind you of the many reasons that people suffer. That when we suffer unjustly for serving God, we should take it patiently and we should live for God through the middle of that. Persecution, whether it is by our own mistakes or because we live in a world of suffering at the hands of other people, it has a purifying effect to help us be more like Jesus Christ. And I'll pause there for now. Next Wednesday night, Lord willing, I want to go through the book of 1 Peter, the passages on actual suffering and if you want a homework assignment, you can read the book of 1 Peter, five chapters between now and next Wednesday, and I think you'll enjoy it and see. Just mark how many times he talks about suffering or trial and facing this. If you don't mind, please stand. I want you to reflect right now on a time in your life when you feel like you are really going through a season of suffering. Maybe it was because of your own poor choices. Maybe it was the choices of other people and they inflicted pain on you. Maybe it was something that was inexplicable. You don't know why you were going through this. You just knew, no, you couldn't get a prayer through and you felt the heat of the trial and you did not know what to do or what was going on. Maybe on your job or someone just had it in for you. 
You have no idea why they just started picking on you. Maybe your godly life convicted them. I want you to think about times you've gone through tough times. You know, back to Job, the Bible said in everything he went through, he never charged God foolishly. He didn't blame God. He didn't curse God and die. He didn't walk away. So my encouragement to you is what Peter will say in his book, what Paul wrote, the verse that I quoted earlier, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. If you're in a season of suffering especially, pray that the Lord would give you patience. That's the word that Peter uses in his book. Patience. Patience, one definition I read, is putting up with a difficult situation without putting a time limit on God to remove it. Say, okay, God. The Bible said to be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. The context of suffering could be until Jesus comes back. I'm not going to tell God that's enough. Stop. He's the Lord. He's the potter. I'm the clay, right? But He knows what's best. If you have a few moments, I'd like to invite you to come to the altar. The goal of suffering is to make us more like Jesus Christ. I read one story about the silver being purified. I don't know if this is true. It makes sense though that the finer, that man who was purifying the silver, heated up, removed the dross. Heated up, removed the dross. And when the silver was finally pure, then that finer could see his reflection in the silver. I pray that through whatever I go through in my life, whatever you go through, that the result is that Jesus Christ could see His image reflected in us.